0: but sharp and iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. So we start in uh, chapter 12 today of Hebrews. So we're almost done. We're getting there. Been a while. We have uh, three more weeks, and we will be done with Hebrews. I don't know. I don't know what we'll do. I'll figure it out. Pick another book to go through. (laughs) So uh, we saw the Hall of Faith. We've seen all that in the last two weeks, and now we go into Chapter Twelve. As I said, we're going to look at verses one through seventeen today, and this would be the, the the supreme example of Christ. All right. So to inspire the audience the original audience the original recipients of the letter to live out their witness in the face of trials and persecutions the writer has presented those uh, the example of the old testament saints who who willingly accepted those trials and deprivation and persecution to obey the lord so we've examined the lives of those saints learning from their examples of what faith uh faith faith looks like, living an obedient life looks like. So uh, we should know by this point the issues that are at hand within this church, that they were suffering great persecution. It's starting to ramp up severely. There was this temptation to return to Judaism, which was at, at at that moment a relatively safe practice within the Roman Empire. And he, the, the writer had ended with the conclusion that summed up his entire argument at the end of chapter 11. So we'll look at 11, 39, and 40, and then move into 12. When he said, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not uh, be made perfect. All right. So they lived out their faith. And they lived in that way, despite never seeing the full measure of their re- the reward during their earthly life, right? And we had said nobody has gone to heaven until, you know, they were, all that was put on hold. Uh, so the writer now picks up with an ex- his exhortation, all right? Uh, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, Man, how many times have we heard this? These verses? (laughs) People really use these. And sometimes they use them out of, you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, like people are watching. We'll get to that. But referring back to to chapter 11, he says, we have this great legacy, right? Of examples, which we should look to. So the word witnesses here, it's not used, is not is not referring to people observing its testimony. All right. We have so great a cloud of testimonies, right? So he's not saying that these people are watching over us or watching us. They're not. He means we should look to them and their accounts and scripture and take note of their examples of their testimony. The, all the ones that he's talked about and the, all those who have gone before us Secondly, he instructs us to lay aside every burden and sin so that we may run a race, that's the, run this race that's been set before us. And what he's saying is that anything that is negative, right, that negatively impacts a runner's ability to gain full speed, to, to, to get rid of it. Uh, back then, athletes uh, in the Roman culture, as a side note, I had read this, it was interesting, but they, they would work out and practice uh, in the nude. So, right? Because they, would, they didn't want anything to hinder what they were doing. All right? So, uh, <laughs> a little history there if you'd like. <laughs> this is funny. I think the point here, though, the point here is some sort of discipline, okay? He uses this language of being an athlete in a race. And this is used in the New Testament a lot, and uh, so athletes, right? Then, as well as today, they deny themselves of many things. You see these uh, stories of these people how they're they're getting ready for the big the big match or whatever the fight, whatever they do. Strict diets, all these types of things that they do, they will deny themselves certain things. So all these things they may not be bad we're not he's not saying i'm not saying there's things that are that you need to get rid of that because it's just bad they could be things though that divert our attention that maybe zaps our energy even and it slows us down right uh you know there's you know just this personally there's there's just things i don't partake in because I don't, you know It's just because I'm like, eh, don't really do like certain, te- like certain movies Things like that, we don't watch uh, I look, I will research a movie Before I watch it I, I look to see what's in the movie <laughs> You know I, I usually go to parents Look at parents' guides Because it'll tell you if there's Stuff in there that in, Which I don't want to expose ourselves to uh, So, anyway It may be what And here's the thing. I don't go preaching that, though, right? Like, whatever, pick a movie, I don't know, and don't watch that movie. I don't don't go preaching that and telling other people, oh, you're bad because you've watched that, right? There's things that may be a hindrance to you that's not a hindrance to me, right? right? Facebook is not a hindrance to me. (laughs) Some people will probably say it's not a... It's not a hindrance at all, but people just get on there and they scroll. And I'm not a scroller. I don't get sucked in. Uh, I use it. Uh, I just look at notifications most of the time. That's about it. <laughs> so it's not. Uh, that's not a hindrance to me. Social media uh, is to some people. But each person, the point is, has to determine for themselves what it is that could be taking up a lot of time, be a hindrance, could slow them down. When you could be maybe doing something else. I don't know. So we're to run with our eyes fixed upon Christ, though. That's the whole point. It's leading up to that. You'll run with your eyes fixed upon Jesus. Just as the athlete fixes his attention on the goal or the prize or the end of the race, we must fix our eyes upon Jesus. Because Christ-likeness is our goal. And this is in the present tense. So it's ongoing. It's continuing. We are always to be looking to Christ, right? So there in verse 2, he says uh, that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. All right, Now in the Greek, that would be like a chief leader. He was the pioneer of this. He's the one that takes the lead in anything and then becomes the example for us. So uh, some translations, instead of perfecter, will say finisher. But it, it, does mean, it means a perfecter. It's one who has in his own person raised faith to its perfection. And so sets before us the highest example of faith. Because the whole life of Jesus was characterized by an unbroken, unquestioning faith in his Father. So, as we run this race... We're to be continually looking to Jesus as our example, as our strength, live in total dependence upon him. Verse three, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. So he's saying consider by way of comparison, compare your suffering is what he's saying. Compare your suffering for his sake with his suffering for you. It, he, it is Hey if you'd actually Just compare what you're going through right now To what Jesus went through And his suffering You'll probably just be ashamed of yourself For even complaining right now That's what he's getting at You look at all He went through for you For you to be encouraged In what you're going through Because if we compare our trials To those that Jesus faced We come up short every time And the writer says that next. Verses 4 and 6. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, so he's saying, In the trials that you've endured, have you sacrificed your life for the sins of the world? That's what he's saying in, in, in when he says, to the point of shedding your blood. Have you done that? Could you do that? No? The answer's obvious, it's no. And this, this is rhetoric. This is all being posed rhetorically. We cannot say that our trials have been so hard that our encumbrance in sin is, is necessary and it's understandable. And as we, we have seen, there were those that had sought to escape their trials by retreating to spiritual life as an unbelieving Jew. A life that would testify then that the Messiah had not come yet. And these, these, of course, were the Judaizers. They weren't the Christians, but this is what's going on there. So to those who see trials as a reason to indulge sinful options, people will, some do that. Well, it's going this bad. I might as well just go and do this. Right? The writer is rebuking them, saying, you have forgotten the whole reason that God allows this. These people had it different. When, that, when it says discipline and chastise here, those are negative words to us, right? These people thought the absence of affliction, the absence of suffering, was a, a sign then of special favor. You guys are God's favorite people, right? And, but the presence of affliction then was a evidence of his anger it's opposite. <laughs> so the author's trying to correct their thinking here by pointing out these facts. In the writer's mind, what was that apparently these believers have forgotten the teaching of the Old Testament concerning suffering. It's throughout the entire thing. And this is his point in the next th- verses through 10. The exhortation to which he refers to was uttered A thousand years before their time. And yet he says it's addressed to them. All right. This is in that uh, verse five. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So he's taking the proverb. Okay. he, he, He says, he doesn't say the exhortation was addressed to those people. He's saying this was addressed to you as sons, present tense. He's reminding them of the words that's found in Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 so they would be able to view their troubles in the proper perspective. And the message of that section of Proverbs is clear that people, you have forgotten that whatever you suffer because of the gospel is a sign that, that, that not of God's neglect of you or his anger, but it's a sign of his love for you. Most of us don't think of trials or suffering and things like that as a sign of love, though, right? When most of us think of discipline or chast- uh, chastening, we think of uh, uh, this is a result of sin, right? It's the first thing that was out of her, uh, her mouth when I said, we, we don't, I don't think we uh, like... We don't like those words. And she said, no, because most people think when you say God's discipline, it's because they're, they have sinned and they're being punished. And that's not that's not the, what's going on here. Many times. All right. God and his sovereignty sovereignty brings trials or difficulties in our lives. And it's not because we have sinned. All right. It's because he wants to mature us. And it's just as we would do with our children to you, to use them to become a better witness of love and faith and joy in the Lord. We learn our weaknesses and we rid ourselves of them, all right? So 7 through 11, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. So he, he's, he, shall we not much more be subject to the Father than we should our earthly Father? Father? is what he goes on here to say. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father or spirits and and live? Verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So when we confront a trial or suffering of any kind it doesn't matter what it is emotional marital physical finances whatever we are encountering a course the lord has set before us a race that he has set before us and it's a discipline that the lord is using to grow us spiritually they move us over time, away from sin, our fleshly behaviors, our actions, reactions, and into a closer spiritual walk with Him—it's this is sanctification. Okay, this is a sanctification, practical sanctification here. So the writer says, if we accept this, if we accept this as discipline, uh, um, or sorry, if we accept the discipline of our earthly fathers with understanding then we ought to be able to accept the discipline of our Heavenly Father with understanding. It should just make sense. The discipline of our earthly fathers have taught us lessons (laughs) that should last us a lifetime. But right, God is going to teach us lessons that last forever, eternity. They're eternal, all right? We are grown spiritually so that we can carry that maturity then as we grow older and then into eternity. And that's why in verse 11, he says, all discipline, whether from our earthly father or heavenly, is not something that we value in that moment, is it? (laughs) No, most of the time not. Yet, in the long run, with the benefit of hindsight, we come to appreciate why it was necessary, why it was worthwhile. God's discipline, produces righteousness it brings a peaceful fruit that leaves us better prepared for the next trial that we'll face and we're all going to face them you know and it doesn't matter how how small or or big you know that they're different levels we experience them on different levels but we have different we have some that we would hear some people talk about and be like what that's it you know like some people don't understand it being anxious or anxiety, right? These are things that we go through. We have to learn how to walk it with the Father in these times. From that to, to sicknesses and, and, and financial uh, issues and all those things. These are, less, these are times to take into perspective that we can learn and grow in our spirituality and our relationship with God. And that's his point. So it's imperative that we keep that proper perspective on what discipline is. God's not angry with you. He's not punishing you. You're not in sin, and that's why bad things are happening, right? Nor will I say, or, or is it a sign that you're doing something good, <laughs> all right? You've already done something good. You've received faith from God because he chose and called you. You've been placed in Christ. So a lot of people are like, well, we must be doing something good. It really made the... Uh, But a lot of people look at these things and say they're all from the devil. It's all from God. We get a little confused there, right? We start attributing things to certain people. Then you start getting messed up. We must have been doing something really good for the kingdom because last month, boom, 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 all this bad stuff's happening. It doesn't really, I don't know. It's all silly to me. It's all silly. (laughs) Trusting God's sovereignty and that he's a sovereign, he is in control of all things, and it's all God. Okay. We have to keep a proper perspective on discipline. Okay? So it's not it's not a sign of his disfavor, it's a sign of his love. Because he loves you. He will and use this word, discipline you. He wants you to share his holiness. That is his point. So the the problem which our author seeks to remedy then is very clear, right? There was a wrong perspective that was affecting these people. They thought that the absence of these things was a sign of God's special favor. And conversely then, right, the presence of it was his anger. All the exact opposite is true. And now he explains next that God will provide us with brothers and sisters and faith to support us in this race, in the fight. 12 uh, and 14. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. All right, so he's asking the body of Christ To work as one here in staying the course that faith demands, I I guess. Would that be our faith? I don't know. The athletic metaphor began in verse 1 and it's continued here. And the idea is this. The competitor, right, because of the longevity and the severity of the race, has allowed his hands to droop and has allowed his knees to become weak. So the word strengthen is plural here and it implies a joint effort that involves many and it means to lift up. All right, I'll also point out the writer is using Old Testament text here from Isaiah 35 and Proverbs 4 and verse 13 is a a course of conduct. All right, In, in, in Greek, it would have been referencing the tracks that are left by the wheels of a cart or a chariot, right? Which later travelers follow. You know, you find a, 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 a trail, all right? Like we, we have trails at the park. Something made those trails. These are paths now for the next set of people to follow. So when we run, we leave tracks behind us. And if we're all on that same path, we're creating this path, which will either lead or mislead others. Therefore, we need to take great care that these tracks we leave are straight. And the lame and healed part that he mentions is about poor testimony and how it can cause harm and many times without the person even knowing it. So he's stressing, stressing the necessity and the obligation of corporate responsibility that we all have. We do this together, right? We we help one another up, we stir each other up, we, we gather, we call, we visit, we pray for one another, or we'll just sit there by somebody. Because that's all you can do in that moment. You're doing a part that you've been called to do. So if the readers make straight paths for their feet, the weak among them are not going to give up. They're gonna be strengthened. And how this is done is suggested in the next part, 14 through 16, where he says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, the context here requires us to understand uh, this uh, the, this mainly of persecutors, right? Their trials seem to have arisen mainly from persecution. So he's exhorting them to pursue peace with them, <laughs> even though... They're being persecuted by them. Then he moves to saying uh, to, to, to have an, an oversight over each other, helping each other to grow in holiness. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Okay? And what I believe what he is getting at here is of those who may draw back from the resources of grace that are available to us. All right? Available at the throne of grace through our high priest, Jesus. Right. There's some that you could say are falling short of the grace given them in Christ. So when somebody in the body makes this decision or that decision, that's not seems doesn't seem to be right. He doesn't just damage his own walk. There's a potential there that he can bring others with them, with him in that decision. We all know that my sin can affect other people. Right. I mean, especially as a a pastor, I could bring shame to this place if, you know, something happened and I'm in the news, right? And then everyone's like, oh, right? Um, But I could be doing something that would lead you guys into doing it as well. And that gets even bigger. So it doesn't just damage my walk. I, I could bring you guys with me or I could damage the the, the good word about the body. So it's a person rather than a, a motive that is intended by the expression here, root of bitterness. And the implication is that that one embittered, rebellious person in the midst can have a disastrous effect on the community All right, as a whole. So that not just the one, but many will be defiled. And defile means to stain here, to contaminate. So it means to cause others to make the same mistake. It only takes one person, right, to rise up. It doesn't matter if it's a good cause or a bad cause. You can see people rally, right, around them and then join the cause. And then then if you find out it's bad, that that one person has caused others to be stained. So, but here we're talking about believers who failed to take the writer's advice and how they face their trials, their sufferings, their tests, that the Lord would bring their way in whatever way. And brothers and sisters who know about the grace of God, but aren't taking advantage of it. They're neglecting it. They are hurting. They're fearful. They're tired. They're, they're not, you know, they're wavering now. They need our help, not our condemnation. They may not even be asking for our help, though they should, but we still lend it anyway instead of condemning them and telling them they're bad and wrong and going to go to hell because that's not true. We are to help them to lend the grace of God, to show mercy. So in particular, immorality and profane disregard, disregard of Christian privileges is to be avoided, which brings up that strange part about Esau. All right. In 16, Jewish tradition depicted Esau as a man of sensuous passions. And, and this would have been well known uh, to the Hebrew recipients of this letter, right? Well, Esau was not only immoral, he, he was also profane. All right? That word means secular, believe it or not. Secular, <laughs> it's a mindset which takes little notice of anything beyond material. And that this was Esau's outlook as a parent in the incident. that was referred to when Esau, for just one meal, had bargained away his inheritance rights as the oldest son. This is in Genesis 25, right? His insistence on the gratification of his immediate need led him to overlook the importance of his rights as the firstborn child. For a small, immediate gain, he bartered away what was of infinitely greater worth. So the Hebrew Christians will be guilty of a much greater act of profanity if disheartened by the difficulties of this race, they barter away their fellowship with God for a short period of worldly ease and prosperity if they go back to the Old Covenant, right? Verse 17. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So now Esau did repent in the sense of tearful seeking the blessing of the firstborn. But the point is, it was too late. Jacob already had the blessing. So what was it that Esau could not find, right? It was not uh, not a turning from the sinful behavior. It was not uh, penance. What What he could not find was a way to change his father's mind. The matter was settled. No matter how much he had pleaded, he couldn't change Isaac's mind. And that makes this a really hard text, (laughs) doesn't it? Makes it sound like you can't, it's too late. It makes it sound like that somebody can go so far to where they have no other chance and because God has settled the matter, all right? Now, I have to be honest. I'm not 100% here when it comes to this verse. All right. But I can't say I believe the writer is saying that immoral and worldly Christians who squander the opportunity for fellowship with God will someday deeply regret not walking with the Lord close more closely and having a more fellowship with other Christians in the church or that this person uh, 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 was never a believer at all that's my only two options there at some point regrets it all i don't believe it is saying that you get ever that a believer would ever get to the point that god has closed the door and that they're damned uh you can't lose your salvation first and foremost and then secondly uh it, it's, just not, it's just not there. It's just not biblical. You just can't find that. I know it sounds like that. Overall, though, I do believe it's saying not to go for temporal pleasure, right? Do not snap under a trial. Do not snap under your suffering. Just hang in there. Be strong. You rely on God and for the body for us to walk together to help each other pursue peace In holiness, watching out for one another, helping one another because we are in this together on the same team and we all need one another in this. So let's make sure that no one comes up short of the grace that God has given them. Because there's grace, there's mercy, there's peace, there's comfort, there's joy, there's righteousness, there's all these things to be given. We are to boldly approach, right, the throne of grace. And we can do that together. So... that that we end on that hard verse there and you know i just have to i I can't say i know what that verse means a hundred percent i can't tell you guys that that would be that would be lying (laughs) right so if that is a hard a little hard text there but i but i do believe that it come that that it's saying the, the 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 worldly christian if you will the nominal type of christian they are saved but they spend more time in the world, and material and stuff and not walking with the Lord. And they're gonna deeply regret that. They're gonna wish they had spent more time uh, growing in relationship and walking with the Lord and spending time with the body.